let's kick off. Uh, I'm very pleased to be joined this morning uh, by uh, two people uh, who, who know their onions as far as this topic is concerned. John Fingleton was uh, Chief Executive of the Office of Fair Trading and before that of the Irish Competition Authority. Uh, he is the founder and CEO of Fingleton, uh, which advises businesses rather ably uh, on regulatory issues. Uh, and uh, James Palmer, very, very well known in this field. He's chair and senior uh, partner at Herbert Smith Freehills. Um, I know him well because he was a former advisor on regulatory policy to the FSA and the FCA boards and is chair of the public policy think tank uh, reform. And of course, Global Council gives its clients advice on foreign investment regulatory developments across Europe. We also did a joint report with Herbert Smith Freehills on the growing politicization uh, of foreign investment in the world. Uh, and you can download that uh, from both our, our websites. Look, we're, we're talking this morning um, about uh, the government's um, important and potentially controversial piece of forthcoming legislation, the National Security and Investment Bill. Uh, they're expected to table this in coming weeks. It may slip, but it will be sometime uh, over uh, the, the, the summer. And to start with, I mean, to bring everyone up to speed, um, let, let me ask James and John um, what uh, the bill is expected to contain, uh, when we might expect to see it, and indeed where it's, where it's come from. I mean, the, the exam question, I think, for this for the next hour is basically whether all this is going to strengthen or weaken the UK's standing as an investment destination, whether it's going to make us stronger or weaker as a centre for business and international trade globally. But let's start with the bill itself. Um, James, why don't you kick off? Where, where is this bill coming from? So, as you say, to start, Peter, with a bit of background, the, uh, the, the genesis of the bill, I think, to, to set the scene, I'll just quickly explain. The current regime for uh, national security intervention or intervention in uh, investments into the UK, whether the UK markets or directly into UK businesses, is in the 2002 Enterprise Act. And that regime is interesting because it was introduced to replace the old 1960s and 70s regime, which had largely not been used ever since Margaret Thatcher's era, uh, which included very, very broad powers to intervene on public policy grounds, uh, which were extensively used in those early years, but not after Thatcher. And in 2002, the regime was, uh, was already constrained by the EU, which didn't allow discrimination between EU member states and only allowed very limited uh, interventions on national grounds, but those did include national security. And the 2002 regime allowed intervention on, merger on antitrust grounds, merger control in the EU merger reg with the UK domestic legislation. It also allowed intervention in relation to control of media plurality and then national security. And the national security powers were incredibly rarely used. Uh, and, and nobody suggested any problems with that either. And indeed, no examples have been given of problems with that. In 2016, uh, Theresa May, but brand new prime minister very rapidly after being uh, elected by her party to, to be leader and therefore appointed as prime minister, uh, was faced with the need to approve the proposed Chinese investment <coughs> uh, in the Hinkley Point uh, nuclear power station. And uh, the, uh, the approval was delayed as she asked that further uh, scrutiny be given to the issue. And that really was the first uh, focus on this issue and it led to the uh, and the the investment was then approved uh, by the way with um, it was a minority investment with protections around control and so on um, and uh, and but but it it planted the thought of this issue of looking at foreign ownership of, of critical infrastructure uh, in the public debate and I think perfectly reasonably as an issue to think about 
In 2017 and 2018, the government published two consultation documents, first a green paper and then a white paper. And in those, they proposed very significant extensions to the powers to intervene on national security grounds. Now, I emphasize uh, this was not a broadening to go back to the old 60s and 70s regime of public interest. Uh, it was, a, but it was a very significant broadening of the uh, potential national interest interventions, including in ways that uh, don't obviously relate to national security. Um, and, uh, and I said national interest earlier, I meant national security. So this was national security focused. And they, at the same time, extended the regime to, to lower the thresholds for uh, calling in and reviewing certain uh, military and dual use and other technology and computer hardware uh, related businesses down to a million pounds as the, as the turnover threshold for intervention, which obviously is a very low level. And, and just uh, one last headline about, about the history uh, before I comment very briefly on where we are on the bill. Um, the the uh, consultation documents uh, talked uh, with commitment about maintaining the UK's position as an, a free trade uh, and foreign investment destination. Uh, but they also posited a move from a tiny number of cases being subject to intervention to a speculated 200 cases a year that would be notified. And we and other commentators are clear it would be dramatically higher. Uh, but of the 200, they thought they'd review 100, and they thought that they would intervene in 50. So we would go from 12 interventions over nearly two decades to 50 active interventions a year, which is obviously a transformative repositioning of UK public policy, political intervention in investment decisions. Now, those were consultations and uh, ministerial statements since have, have, uh, have sought to emphasise that it was just consultation. Uh, but that's where it was left. And, uh, and we know that there were a lot of objections to the original consultation, as long as, uh, along with some recognition of the sense as the UK moved to Brexit of recognising that it no longer had the EU regime and it would therefore need to have its own regime. And I think people are sympathetic to the idea of re-looking at, uh, at national security issues on the whole. Uh, but I think that there was a lot of criticism of the breadth and the government took it away. And the private feedbacks we were hearing were that the government recognised they needed to work harder on, on tailoring it to hit their goal of maintaining free trade. We then didn't hear much. Uh, and then um, the, uh, the new uh, uh, government under Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, announced in the Queen's speech uh, that there would be a new national security and investment bill. We knew this had been on the stocks. And literally, really, nothing has been published in relation to the bill to date. Uh, there's been a lot of press comment about it. And, uh, and essentially, we don't yet know what the scope of the bill will be. We don't know whether it will be uh, a responsive uh, a supplement to the scope previously consulted on, uh, which seeks to address some of the concerns raised. Uh, we don't know whether it will stick with the recommendations of those earlier consultations that the regime follow the existing UK model of a, of a voluntary filing regime where parties can choose to file uh, but uh, don't have to, but the government can always call a transaction in. So if it's in a sensitive area, typically parties would notify, or whether it would be a mandatory notification regime. So we don't know that, uh, which would catch an awful lot of transactions potentially. And the prime minister has been quoted suggesting that a mandatory regime may now be being considered contrary to the earlier recommendations. And we also don't know whether it will limit its focus still to national security, or whether it will uh, potentially seek to bring in a much, um, a much broader regime. And, uh, and so uh, there, there are a number of areas of lack of clarity about it. What we do know is that the government has been at least considering both making the regime a mandatory filing regime uh, and that they are also considering uh, the regime uh, broadening beyond national security to public interest, going back to that 60s and 70s test. Okay. Um, let's, let's put the 
politics, the political environment and where this is springing from aside for one moment. I want to return to that later on uh, in our discussion. Uh, and I want to look at some of those, some of the mechanics, James, that you already touched on in a moment. But John, can I just ask you for your view on, on, on where and what do you think the bill is expected to contain? Uh, do you agree entirely with uh, James? Um, and what do you think it is trying to do? I mean, what is the point of it? <clears throat> so um, I, I, I agree with um, everything James has said. Um, I, I think the, if, if you go back to 2018, the proposals then, um, it was going to create a whole new bureaucracy within Bayes, um, about three times the size of what the Competition and Markets Authority currently does on mergers. So that was the that was the scale of what they were envisaging, just looking at these investments. And I can't imagine that, that the current uh, government is, um, is going to be less ambitious, as it were, for that level of intervention than it was in 2018, just given the, the external climate, particularly the, the rise in suspicion about China. Um, and the pressure from the United States uh, in respect of that. So I think that um, my expectation is that the, 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 the business department wants to be quite interventionist. The bill was supposed to be published two weeks ago. <clears throat> it was being delayed. And one hopes that one of the reasons it's been delayed is that other departments are pushing back on that expansive approach. Um, I think it's probably worth pointing out um, another feature of what's happening is just a lack of transparency. When the government um, expanded these areas of dual use military and computer hardware in 2018, it consulted publicly. Uh, when it expanded into the, the, the thresholds for AI, um, cryptography and advanced materials two weeks ago, um, it simply did so in a statutory instrument uh, late at about eight o'clock in the evening in Parliament that came into force at midnight. There was no consultation and no debate about it. So, um, and, and what you're seeing is a salami slicing so that we've now had several um, increases in, in levels of intervention. One final point um, that I think is relevant is what happened with GKN Melrose, which is not one of the 12 cases. We've had 12 national security cases since 2002, no, no prohibition. GKN Melrose wasn't actually one of those cases. It was the threat of a public interest intervention. And the concessions that got extracted there had nothing to do with national security. They had to do with employment, apprenticeships, prompt payment, and a whole lot of other factors. So one of the features I would expect to be in the bill is a very broad range for ministers to intervene across a range of factors. So it could be very expansive. So what you're saying, uh, or possibly implying, is that under the cloak of national security, the government is taking powers basically to do whatever it wants. I mean, or, or whatever powerful vested interests want. Yeah. So you invoke national security as a sort of catch-all phrase, um, uh, and and allow whatever, as you say, powerful or vested interest to come into play and to push the government in whatever direction. It wants. Okay, look, let, let's look at let's look under the bonnet of this uh, thing and explore some of the mechanics uh, of of, a, of what a new system might might become. I mean, based on what we already know, is likely to be contained in the bill. James has already touched on one or two of these things, and and you have John too when you talk about base. I mean, first of all, which entity, which institution within government or which department or individuals are going to administer this system? Will Bayes continue to lead or given that sort of security is a basically a catch-all that could apply to almost any responsibility of almost every government department, will it be a cross-Whitehall system rather than one simply driven by Bayes? Either of you, what do you think? I mean my expectation is that it will be a, a new unit within Bayes. Um, at the moment, all of these cases are um, go to the CMA in the first instance, Competition Markets Authority, and then the relevant regulator, for example, if it's media plurality, that's Ofcom, or department, the MOD, or the security services, make representations to the CMA 
and the CMA then passes a report on to the Secretary of State, who then decides on both competition and um, national security issues. The intention is that you would now bypass the CMA completely. Um, that would result in a reduction in transparency. Other parts of government would feed views in um, to Bayes, as they currently do to the CMA, but it would be the Secretary of State for, for business who would ultimately uh, make the decision. Um, I think the process would almost certainly be less transparent. Um, the CMA publishes reasoned decisions. Um, uh, two other features um, worth mentioning of the proposals in 2018 is that in 2018, the national security provisions applied to all parts of the economy, although there was a list of core sectors where they'd be most likely. So no sector of the economy was going to be excluded. And they also covered a broader range of activities than M&A. So they included in certain types of investments, loans, acquisitions of intellectual property rights, including copyright and patent, and acquisition of physical property. Um, so it's not just going to be M&A that would go into this unit. It would be, you know, pr property purchases and other things could be caught there. I mean, you, you, you talk rather lightly of a new unit. You're, you're in effect creating a department within a department, which, which will probably sort of suck the oxygen out of the rest of Bayes. Because if you're talking about 200 plus plus cases a year, you know, a hundred and more will be reviewed and the government will be expected to act on 50 of them. You're talking about a major switch of resources and personnel from the department and the CMA into what will be a new driving uh, force within the entirety of Bayes. Uh, it's not... Yes, and... There's going, to be no, there's going to be no saving. There's going to be no saving at the CMA because it will continue, and it's it's done like on average one case a year. So so this doesn't take anything out of the CMA. It's entirely incremental on top of that. And I would just add uh, that I think that we're crystal clear that the estimate of 200 notifications in the original consultation was a massive underestimate. Uh, yeah. a, a huge number of law firms and the Institute of Chartered Accountants also made that point in their responses to the consultation, which uh, to look at the optimistic side still, maybe government will take into account. Uh, we hope they will, but but the, the tone of noise is the other direction, as, as John has said. But uh, we, we think, given that they're now looking at a broader regime, uh, given, as John has pointed out, that acquisitions of intellectual property are caught, uh, given that um, acquisitions down to... Uh, any, without any de minimis in certain sectors and certainly uh, with no thresholds generally is, is the proposal. Uh, we think you'd have high hundreds if not thousands of notifications. We think it would be a completely different uh, approach to foreign investment for the UK from that less than one a year that we had up to 2016. Okay, so you're essentially turning Bayes into uh, a new sort of force to erect and man the barricades uh, around the UK economy. Um, let's, let's just touch on this issue of mandatory versus voluntary, uh, which James, you mentioned uh, before. I mean, is that a distinction without a difference in reality? I mean, if, there's, if the scope becomes so wide and so uncertain, I mean, you can have it in principle as a voluntary system, but wouldn't people be unwise to leave it to chance and that therefore almost certainly going to notify all their cases in advance in any case? So, so I don't think that's fair. I think that uh, a very large number of cases would potentially be notified, but I think that it is not the case that everything would be notified. I think if everything was notified, given the breadth of this, and I, I I find it hard to think the government could believe that everything had to be susceptible to mandatory notification. If they did, it is completely clear that it would take years to develop the bureaucracy to handle that. And they certainly aren't in a position to do so. And, uh, and, and investment in the UK would look very, very different. I, I think that there will be a whole range of cases given the breadth of the regime, which could technically fall within it. The parties will take a view. But I agree with you in the sense that, as happens with competition notifications, if it's, if it's in a sensitive area, the parties choose to notify. So we would strongly urge that any regime 
does remain a voluntary notification regime because at least you're only sucking in those where the parties believe there could be an intervention, not those where it's palpably obvious to everybody there shouldn't be any at all. Yeah, but James, I'm making a slightly different point. I mean, this is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, you say, you know, leave it to sort of particularly sensitive areas. This could develop and unfold in a way or in different directions uh, which creates huge uncertainty, very difficult to predict, and you don't know which way the government is going to go and where uh, these powers might take them. And therefore, I, I fully accept that a voluntary system doesn't mean that it's, it's obviously mandatory, you don't have to notify. But I'm just saying that, you know, if there's so much uncertainty around it, it might be safer to notify uh, and to get clarity in the first instance than not. But, uh, but who am I? John, what's your view on this? I mean, I, I think the mandatory um, regime is not going to be the biggest problem for business. It'll at least give them certainty they have to notify. Um, and under the current system, you saw what happened with the threat of uh, calling it in with GK and Melrose. Yeah. Um, it, that'll create other problems for businesses, but I don't think that it's going to be the most egregious part of this proposal. Okay. So, so I, I will just say I, 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 I am still concerned about mandatory notification other than in narrow areas. In the narrower sensitive areas, uh, I agree people will notify. And I do agree your point, Peter, that, that this is going to suck in a whole lot of things that have nothing to do with national security where there's some sensitivity. But I, uh, I do still think we shouldn't underestimate the impact for small businesses, for IP transactions and so on, of a full mandatory notification regime. I think that would be a disaster. Okay, so what about this distinction between national security uh, and national interest, uh, given that the government are reflecting on whether national interest you know, should be the core criterion for screening foreign investment? So why don't I have a go at that first and I mean, then John come in? I mean, I mean what I was going to make, James, is that given that national security is already so wide and nebulous a term, might you not as well, just as well, use the catch-all national interest? So I, I, I don't think so for, for two reasons. The first is that I agree with you, national security can be very broadly drawn to talk about economic dependency and so on. And we've seen it talked about that way. And that's clearly part of the China debate. And uh, whatever one's views on the China trade issue, there is, there is clearly a political steam around the world on that. And there is a concern about economic influence uh, and the national security in the broadest sense consequences of that. But I think that, um, so you're right, national security is being very broadly drawn. I think a national interest regime is a fundamentally different thing. And the countries that effectively have it are a tiny number. So if the government was to introduce a full public interest or national interest test, we would be aligned with Australia and Canada, which both have had such regimes for many years to protect their resources. Uh, and although very much uh, 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 friendly trading nations of the UK are not the uh, international business headquarter centres to the same extent the UK is, or at all comparably, and the other is France, which is famously seen as interventionist. So other countries are doing this within a national security remit. The US does, our EU uh, friends do as well. So to go for a public interest test would be positioning the UK at the extreme of intervention amongst the developed world. And it would then allow government not even to worry about a national security rationale, but to adopt any rationale they felt appropriate. Um, and Peter, could I just add to that? Um, a national security test, in principle, you could limit the remedies that the minister could impose to being those related to national security. And we, we don't have that at the moment. And as I said with GK and Melrose, the, the, the undertakings they gave were very, very broad and had nothing to do with national security. So I think you could limit the, the interventions that could be made, and that would be a helpful thing to do. With national interest, I don't think you can do that. And with national interest, you're likely to have a whole range of other factors like impact on employment, impact on regional growth or leveling up, impact on the environment and sustainability, etc., etc. Um, creeping in because it'll be whatever the national interest or public interest in these cases will be, whatever 
private interest happens to have the strongest lobbying power, um, uh, it's very difficult for ministers to intervene otherwise. Okay. Let, let's just look at how, I mean, politically this will operate. I'm again putting aside for one moment you know, where this springs from. It's the whole sort of where the drive or momentum comes from. So I want to come back to that in a moment. But I want to talk about the, the politics of the process that people have in mind. Um, I mean, in, in a sense, I can answer this question myself. I've been a Secretary of State at the centre of this sort of ministerial decision-making and pray to the influences uh, that uh, operate on a Secretary of State in circumstances like this. But let me ask you two first, what do you think of the competing priorities or pressures or interest groups that will operate on the government uh, in, uh, in these circumstances, should we get this legislation in? Well, if I start off on that, <clears throat> I think you're going to have a, a long list of groups who are going to be able to game the system and lobby and that's going to include competitors who either fear a stronger rival in the market or might want to buy the asset or part of the asset you're going to have trade unions who campaign on jobs and other um, uh, worker benefits like pensions um, you're going to have suppliers campaigning on issues like prompt payment which happened um, in other cases environmental groups are going to argue on sustainability you may have regional governments or other regional factors playing in. You may have foreign governments expressing views. Um, select committees increasingly run parallel inquiries on these mergers. And I think ultimately, you know, once you open the Pandora's box that the minister takes the decision, you create, um, you know, uh, open season for any interest group that wants to come in and argue an issue. And it may have nothing to do with national security, but once um once it's got a sort of wind behind it um it's going to to um be very difficult for the minister and with gk and melrose you had the um guardian and the daily mail united against the deal for um slightly different reasons but you know that's a pretty um difficult combination for a minister to to go against and just just uh, to, I, I, I agree uh, with john but i well the only point i'll just add to that is I, I think that it's simple. I think that anybody will be able to apply pressure uh, and the broader the regime, the broader the constituencies that can apply pressures. And the problem that a broader regime introduces is, uh, is a, a real politic one that Peter, you know better than, than all of us, which is if you've got very broad powers, you get blamed if you don't use them. So you will be under pressure to use them in a way that mitigates your short-term uh, criticism and exposure. It's called politics. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember uh, after Kraft Cadbury, where incidentally I too had the Daily Mail uh, and the Guardian and just about everyone else, all the media on my back and with campaigns being mounted in the country, uh, spearheaded chiefly, but not only uh, by the trade unions. And uh, after Kraft Cadbury, where I found that I, I, I just didn't have the powers, uh, to uh, to prevent this um, or to sideline it, I I reflected on and, and held some sort of review about uh, the Secretary of State's powers and where, whether I shouldn't uh, introduce legislation to change the system and to acquire new powers uh, so that I wouldn't be left uh, in the position I was in Kraft Cabri of sort of powerlessness and just being kicked around in the media. And I reflected on this for about three to six months, and I concluded in the end that I didn't actually want new and different powers, for really, for precisely the reasons that you two have, have said, that it would open a Pandora's box of different uh, interests. I mean, some obvious ones, like, you know, employees' representatives, campaigning on jobs and pensions etc uh, but rather more hidden interests I mean all manner of people trying to game the system uh, as, as, as John said um, and that it would actually be impossible uh, to sort of navigate your way through uh, such myriad pressures uh, and demands and interests and in the end 
um, you know, you'd be worse off than if you had left it you know, to the market in the first place. And so I didn't actually change fundamentally. I changed some of the procedures of the takeover panel, but not the fundamental uh, system. Um, and uh, I, I agree with you. Uh, you are really going to open yourself up to the most extraordinary campaigns and pressures, uh, which are going to be highly emotionally driven. You're going to be prey to all sorts of political pressures amongst uh, members of parliament, your own cabinet colleagues. I can imagine the prime minister bearing down on you and saying, for goodness sake, you know, get this out of the papers, you know, kick it into touch, uh, deal with it, turn it off. Um, and, and sort of at which point rationality and longer term national interest, frankly, would fly out of the window. Um, I mean, somebody, I think, John, you said, or was it James, that, that given that we've had national security as a criterion in and since the Enterprise Act in 2002, it's a relatively few number of, na of actual national security issues that have, that have arisen or, or national security interests have been invoked. It, 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 did I hear, hear you correctly saying that? And, it, and if that yes. is the case, why are we making such a fuss in the sense about national security? If A, we've already got the power in the 2002 Act and actually hasn't been invoked that frequently since. I mean, the, <clears throat> there are, um, there've been 12 cases since 2003, um, um, seven of those up until 2016, and um, the rate has increased a little bit um, since uh, um, the Theresa May government. No case has ever gone to an in-depth phase two review, and no case has ever been blocked. And the, um, the, the, the concessions on them have been uh, or the undertakings given have sometimes been to retain existing strategic capabilities in the UK or to protect sensitive technology and information or comply with certain governance requirements. And, and those have been you know, aligned with national security. So I would argue that that system has actually worked quite well. I mean, the, in the 2008 proposal, the government said that national security risks are increasing. Um, but it's unclear to me that we the level of risk is increasing at a rate that we would jump from fewer than one case a year to 200 cases a year. And if I if I can just add, um, uh, I think that uh, the 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 noise around this is around China. But if you look at the 12 cases that have been called in, four of them were in connection with China. Eight of them were in connection with U.S. or European Western European acquirers. And I think that uh, there is a, I, I, I uh, had some sympathy with national security as a subject to ownership being looked at when it emerged in 2016, because it seemed to me it hadn't been looked at at all. And there was at least a philosophical point that warranted thinking about. But I think the, uh, the speed and breadth, uh, the speed of, of, of heading towards a much broader regime has, uh, as you've gathered, concerned me enormously, because I think what we're risking doing is creating a regime for a very, very small number of cases, as you've drawn out, Peter, uh, which actually will catch everybody, including our friendly trading partners, whom we're saying we believe in open uh, borders to, but we're going to fundamentally change their experience. And, and one other uh, uh, data point is that neither consultation uh, that was published gave a single example of a problem situation which they wished they'd been able to catch uh, and which couldn't have better been well they didn't give any examples at all and if they had given any they've either caught them through the new regs that have come in already or it would be far better to catch them through other measures like export controls okay so what on earth then is all this about i mean let's look at it from the other end of the telescope um what is going on politically here that's driving this legislation? Because if all that you say is true and there's no reason to doubt it, why are we making, why are we letting ourselves open to such a sort of potentially draconian piece of legislation, which, whether it's fully used or misused, could lead to uh, a very different perception 
of Britain's attitude towards uh, foreign direct investment. I mean, that you will have a feeling that we're, we're sort of going along a, an American Scythius type route here, that it's a sort of Americanization of, of British policy, which, you know, in the eyes of some people is sort of policy making by paranoia. Um, but let's look at it from that end, other end of the telescope. I mean, is it, is it China which is being used to spook everyone here? Or, or is there a legitimate um, China concern or, or, or what? I mean, where do, what are the political motivations? What are the genuine policy concerns that the government is trying to address uh, with these changes? Um, Peter, if I, if I start on that, I, I think um, the origins for this shift in, 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 came in Theresa May's speech to become leader of the Conservative Party while she still had opposition in that. And it was the same speech in which he talked about workers on boards and criticized um, sort of hedge fund type capital. And it, 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 that felt decidedly corporatist. And I do think that one of the political things here is, it, is the reintroduction of corporatism and the idea that um, governments should make businesses um, internalize some of the policy objectives they have around employment and other, other things. Um, I think the second thing was that national security was Theresa May's um, one strength, and and so she played to that politically. I do think COVID has amplified it in two ways. One, the general rising concerns about China, and you see that with uh, how it's played out with Huawei, but also I think concerns that we said have self-sufficiency in supply chains for food and medicines in a crisis. And then I think a third political factor um, and that would happen regardless of COVID is that I think a lot of this is driven by US industrial policy towards China and the, the need to strike a trade deal with the United States. And I think we would have had that absent um, COVID. So I think there's a, um, a, a mixture of different political factors um, and, and the corporatist one is long term and the US one is very much about a trade deal. Yeah, I mean, the term corporatist is a rather sort of derogatory term. Uh, let, me, <laughs> let, me, let, let me, again, put it a different way. Is it not reasonable in this day and age in the 21st century for the government to create instruments of intervention that enable it to uh, encourage, force uh, companies to take account of wider public policy concerns or goals in relation to the environment, for example, or uh, social obligations towards your employees or, or, or to other stakeholders, uh, that it's not unreasonable uh, that, uh, that, that your governance of your company is held more to account you know, through the medium or filter of the government playing a greater role. So I, 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 I let me have a go. I, I completely agree that governments have a responsibility to think about all of their public policy uh, concerns and how they uh, have a social impact for the better on their country. Uh, but I think that first point is to do that through control of ownership is a very odd way of trying to achieve your goals uh, in, in most cases. Very occasionally it may be relevant, but very, very rarely, as we've seen from the lack of any problems to date. Uh, secondly, uh, I think that it, it, just as government thinks about those things, and I, I think they do want to protect jobs, they do want to build security of supply if there's a crisis for the UK, uh, stability of supply chains and so on, uh, but they've got to understand that whatever they do has consequences. And uh, unfortunately, there is a trade-off here, and saying that the government wants to manage national security and wants to continue to be as open to foreign investment it is a very difficult balance and a significant change in how you regulate foreign investment will leave the UK looking competitively less attractive than a lot of other countries 
that are very, very uh, good places to set up businesses that do not apply similar levels of intervention. And just because some countries are increasing their levels of intervention does not mean all are. But I think this is driven, as John said, by a context of more protectionism globally, uh, more short-term populist and nationalist pressures. I agree with John about the Theresa May origins, but I, I actually think that it is interesting to see where this government does go on this, because there is clearly a constituency in the government and in the Conservative Party that is passionately free trade and, and almost libertarian in that. And there's another constituency that is, to use John's word, corporatist and interventionist. And uh, I think that it is surprising to me, and I don't think it would have happened absent COVID or the China debate, to see uh, the Prime Minister Johnson's government go so hard potentially towards the heavy interventionist end of the spectrum. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, you could look at this in, in two ways from the government's point of view. On the one hand, they want post-Brexit Britain to be open for business, to be a, remain a global player, very attractive to foreign uh, direct investment, uh, in, in which case they would, in a sense, be offering greater economic freedom uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an attractor for businesses and investors to come to Britain. On the other hand, uh, we know that they have views on the long-term development of the UK economy, uh, and uh, they want to take the economy post-Brexit, they want to reshape it away from its uh, focus on Europe's giant single market, uh, and they want to be able to steer it. Uh, they want to be able to play a much bigger role in in navigating uh, the uh, economy's future uh, course. And that means, in a sense, you know, parachuting uh, ministers into potentially quite deep sort of market complexity, but so as to give them the leverage they want in order to obtain the business outcomes or economic outcomes they favour. I mean, I can see it. I'm trying to put myself into their heads. You know, one is the economic freedom route, and the other is the reshaping the UK economy and government's role in doing that as the alternative route. Is, is, is that too simplistic a way of trying to analyse or understand the government's motives here? I mean, I don't think they can do both, by the way. I think these are competing approaches. Um, and they seem to be going for the latter, not the economic freedom <laughs> route um, or the free market route, but more the sort of controlled um, government steering and managing route. So I, I, I would just say, I think in some other areas of government activity, we have seen them heading towards the free market route. Uh, so if you look at their approach on on Brexit, parking the fact of Brexit, uh, which is a rather large park, but, but given we are where we are on that, I think if you look at the arrangements the UK has put in place for uh, EU businesses to continue their activities in the UK, which have not been reciprocated in equivalent offers from the EU, I think the UK has taken a very pro-free market and open borders approach, which has been very, very well received by those international investors and, and businesses more broadly. Uh, I think you are absolutely right, Peter, that they are trying to work out how they achieve their goals. Uh, and I think the model you've described is a perfectly rational one for politicians to adopt. And indeed, rational politicians adopted it in the 60s and 70s. And I'm afraid I would say, look where that got them. Uh, and I think if you want to attract businesses, there are better routes to doing so than trying to regulate them into doing what you want uh, and deal with your public policy goals through more tailored interventions. I tell you where it does lead. It leads you straight back into uh, the proverbial quandary for ministers uh, in choosing between winners uh, and losers, in which you set out to pick winners but end up finding that losers are picking you. Um, and the law of unintended consequences quickly kicks in. John, what's your view? Well, Peter, I, I mean, I think your question touches on, <clears throat> on this as a form of industrial policy. The first point is that the government has never stated that this is its intention, that this be industrial policy. But I think that could emerge as 
new thinking from 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 um, this Secretary of State. I would say about that that the government has a huge range of industrial policy instruments right now. You know, R and D, innovation funding, IP protection, tax incentives, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and one of the big worries about this is um, that it doesn't just enable the government to stop foreign direct investment coming in. In principle, it also allows the government to override um, decisions by the Competition Markets Authority to prohibit anti-competitive mergers. And you can see that argument being used to advance you know, the idea that we should have a national champion and that we should allow a merger of the two strongest players in the UK in order that they compete globally. And I think that would be a deeply harmful form of industrial policy. Um, it's been practiced before without success. So I think that there are serious worries if this did morph into um, an industrial policy approach. Um, and um, you know, I think that, that almost anything the government wants to do in terms of industrial policy, it can do anyway. And finally, as with national security, the idea that you're going to achieve government policy only in those cases where there's a change in control and not in the rest of the economy and the rest of businesses, I think is a bit absurd. And just, I mean, I'm going to turn to questions from those who are participating in this in a moment. But can I just ask before I do that, ask one quick question about the extent to which other governments in other countries uh, are bringing in changes to their own country's regimes and whether this is a, a justification uh, or offers a model for its own approach. Um, James, you have a partner at HSF, Veronica Roberts, who I think is on this call, and she's an expert on foreign investment regulation. Veronica, can you just quickly tell me, are other countries doing all this and going in this direction and therefore we're catching up? Thanks, Peter. So, so it is true that other governments have been making changes and all the more so in recent months. But at the same time, most of those other countries have taken a very targeted approach, both in terms of focusing on specific sectors that their regime covers and also specific investors. And so when, when you look at specific sectors, countries like France, Italy and Spain, are limiting their notification requirements to certain identified sectors, the ones that you would expect, like national defence and security and critical infrastructure. And whilst the list of strategic sectors um, covered in those countries has expanded in recent months, they still have this more tailored and targeted approach than we've seen in the UK's white paper. And the same is true also when looking at the focus on specific investors so most European countries do distinguish between EU and non-EU investors, and they have a stricter regime applying to non-EU investors. And Spain introduced um, an interesting change recently, where the foreign investor is directly or indirectly controlled by a foreign government, so some sort of SOE, a stricter FDI regime will apply across all sectors for those investments. And then finally, and this has already been touched on, um, most other countries still have a test that's based very much on national security. And you've only got a very small number of developed countries, and James called this out already, Australia, France and Canada, applying a broader public interest test. And although we've seen a lot of change in FDI regimes in recent months, most of them have stuck to the strict national security test. Okay. Um, we, we've got 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes left for questions. So, and, and we're now moving into the, the sort of Chatham House rule part of this broadcast. Everything else that has been said up to now is, is, is on the record. Um, th there's one question which um, a participant has, and I'm in, I know, Johnny, you've answered it on the Q&A, but I just want... Uh, you, you to elaborate on this uh, and that's a question about uh, a new unit being separate from the CMA um, and what will happen to merger investigations where the element caught by the new bill is only a subset of the entire transaction. Um, how, will, how will this operate in, in practice in your view, John? I mean, it, it, even the, in the 2008 proposals which are quite detailed, that was left unclear my expectation is that it would work in parallel 
um, with the CMA looking at the um, competition aspects of the transaction and the business department looking at the um, national security or public interest, whatever it happens to be, aspects with the timetables being reasonably well coordinated. Um, that that already there's already very close cooperation between Bayes and the CMA on existing public interest cases, and you get a flavour also, you know, in in in, um, in the other area where this has been commonly used, or at least I think there've been seven cases of media plurality, where Ofcom has to work in parallel with the Secretary of State um, and the um, and the CMA. And, and in those cases, the, the system has worked quite well. So I think that that part of it is, is, is probably not my main concern. Okay. I mean, if we have a sort of white list, CFIUS type white list introduced, whereby investors from friendly trading partner nations would be exempt from this new regime, doesn't that then get stripped back to take a very sort of essentially naked form of, of targeted uh, legislation, essentially and simply at China. I mean, is China what this is all about, both of you? And if we get into a situation where we introduce new legislation, which is essentially, for all intents and practice purposes, going to be used only against China rather than friendly nations, um, it's going to sort of accelerate the process of... Uh, I don't know, <laughs> mounting cold war or um, economic commercial warfare, certainly between ourselves and China, is that not likely to be the outcome? Um, I, I don't think China is the, the whole part of it. I mean, James has pointed out that of the 12 existing cases, only four of them related to China. I mean, advance purchase of common... That was then. Under yeah, Ad, 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 Advent's purchase of Cobham last, um, last autumn was a US company buying a UK asset. And of course, GK and Melrose was a UK company buying a UK asset. So, you know, uh, certainly a whitelist um, might be one way of um, addressing these concerns. I think the European Commission's approach to this, which goes back to something called the Lilly Doctrine in the UK, is to focus on um, state-owned enterprises making purchases um, and the idea that they in some sense is implicit state aid um, or state subsidy coming in that's another um, thing that would apply particularly to countries like China that have a high percentage of state-owned capital or state-owned enterprises but I think in the end it's very difficult for this not to get wrapped up in the current um, China debate the you know the China research group in parliament um, has you know become I think not not unlike the um, uh, the ERG during Brexit. It's the it's the sort of um, the part of the Conservative Party that could in principle overturn a government majority, and so I think that's probably quite a worry for 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 the government and a reason why ultimately China is going to be an, a critical part of this. I think debate is a is a generous term to use about the current fever. Uh, James, did you? Would you? Yes, I, I was just going to add. I mean, I I agree with John that it's not all about China. But put it this way, I don't think we'd be having the debate in these terms if the China focus hadn't built up. And I I basically agree with the point you've made, and uh, and one of the questioners has asked about, and that John has made. I think you've got two routes, and our briefing that was attached to the invitation sets out both of these mitigating approaches, uh, which are one you either use the CFIUS style whitelist which is um, that you just you uh, you don't impose the same onerous obligations on a large number of countries that are your friendly trading partners because um, if you do impose the same ones you want to uh, uh, catch everybody on uh, that will have a very significant impact on investment there's no doubt about that and the other approach is that you uh, as veronica said and john's alluded to you go back to the Lilly doctrine which is to focus on state-owned or heavily influenced businesses and, uh, and actually you're narrowing your focus. It all turns on what your public policy concern is in the first place. And as you've drawn out, Peter, it's unclear really which of the many public policy focuses is the real driver here. And I think we need to flush that out and have a, an open debate about it. Yeah, as, as, as some, somebody has also put into the Q&A, it, it's not just China which operates 
as uh, as a state actor. Um, I mean, it is becoming increasingly, you know, the model that populist leaders, autocratic leaders. I mean, it, you, you are seeing. Uh, I mean, even in uh, in India, for example, Modi is using colossal uh, state power uh, in order to pursue certain business and other uh, objectives. So <laughs> it, it's not just China. Um, and what I've always argued is that the problem with the WTO is not that you know, people are simply uh, not following the spirit as well as the letter of its rules. Its rules themselves are out of date because the rules of the WTO were predicated on an assumption, a 1990s assumption, that basically every economy would become in time and would evolve into a Western-style uh, market-based economy uh, and that obviously is not the case and therefore you need new updated uh, rules governing both trade and investment uh, that, uh, that create a, um, a, an equality uh, of disciplines on economies that are both state-backed and market-based otherwise you're going to have a sort of permanently inbuilt inequality and imbalance uh, between the two. Look, I just want to, in the, in the last remaining moments we have, just to ask you, focus on, on the alternatives uh, uh, to the restrictions on, on, on acquisitions and ownership. Uh, and, uh, and, and what are alternative, less invasive tools that could be used um, you know, to protect the economy with the same ends, but without simply uh, focusing uh, on ownership. What are the alternative instruments or policy tools that the government might adopt? So let me have a go first. I mean, I think there's a long menu is the answer. Uh, and, and it was disappointing that neither consultation talked about any of the alternatives. And, and just to observe, it is extremely odd to launch a focus on national security with your one tool being a moment in time assessment of whether ownership may lead to problems. Uh, and that, that has certainly been the way it's come over. Uh, John, I'm sure we'll be able to add others, but uh, if you want to protect jobs, do so through employment legislation. If you want to control access to, uh, to technology which, on which critical infrastructure is dependent, create licensing controls that allow you to set a regime for that. Uh, if you want to stop uh, intellectual property leaving the UK, create export controls over targeted, sensitive bits of data. Those are just a few. There's a, there are many others. I mean, I would add to that, that you know, the importance of, of uh, maintaining our security services as being amongst the best in the world and up to date to deal with new and evolving threats and properly resourced to investigate these things. I mean, we must, it's, it's not that there isn't a national security threat, but um, we, we need to be building our security services to, um, to, to deal with that in addition to things James has said. Yeah, it's interesting actually in the case of Huawei that the intelligence and security agencies uh, very thoroughly doing their uh, job, um, not once but twice, but three times, you know, reviewed Huawei's uh, supply of equipment uh, to our network from a security point of view. Uh, and on each occasion gave it, if not a clean bill of health, then as it were an equally, uh, an equal bill of health, because their point was this, that our network is vulnerable you know, to all comers, whatever equipment we use, whether it's Huawei or not. Uh, one thing they did find was that there was no, you know, Chinese state backdoor into our network as a result of using Huawei equipment. Um, obviously, what's changed is the sheer scale and ferocity of US sanctions, uh, which, uh, uh, which nobody can ignore. Look, thank you both very, very much indeed. This has been a a very wide-ranging and a very, very thorough discussion. Um, uh, I, uh, uh, and I think very useful and very enjoyable uh, uh, for all. I mean, all I, <laughs> I would say is that, I mean, what you're describing 
is a system and a bureaucracy and a scope and a means of intervention that would, I must say, when I think of when I first came into the cabinet in 1998, when I went to the DTI, and then 10 years later, uh, rejoined the government uh, um, and went into uh, biz, I, I can't think of a single moment in the whole history uh, of, of that government where we would ever have imagined um, taking unto ourselves so much arbitrary and unpredictable power um, that this uh, proposed legislation uh, envisage, envisages giving to the government uh, now. I mean, it's the sort of scope for intervention that I think even Tony Benn might have bought to using uh, in his heyday. But we will see. Uh, and uh, we don't yet have the bill tabled. Uh, let's see how it pans out and how it navigates its way through uh, Parliament. But I think you're almost certainly right. We are, in, we are at risk of opening uh, a Pandora's box uh, in this legislation. Um, I, I mean, the, 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 the risk of unintended consequences kicking in, I think, is sizable. But let's see. Thank you both. Thank you, John. Thank you, James, very much indeed. Uh, thank you, Global Council. Thank you, Fingleton. Thank you, Herbert Smith, Freehills. Uh, for bringing this uh, important webinar uh, to uh, to our participants. Thank you, Peter. Thanks. Thanks very much, Peter. Thank you, everybody, for dining in.